Hi everyone, welcome to the Peak in the Pit podcast, an episodic podcast to share the peaks and the pits in the day-to-day lives of teachers, students, and staff as a tool for reflection, growth, and improvement. It's been about two years since we last spoke. Welcome back. You've grown and changed. I like to think I've grown and changed. And yet, here we are back together, still sharing our peaks and pits of our day to day life as a tool for reflection, growth, and improvement. Much like a district improvement plan or a strategic business plan, depending on your environment of work, this reflection, growth, and improvement is cyclical. It is never ending. And with no definitive end, it can feel sometimes for me personally that no growth has really taken place or that things have remained stagnant or that I haven't evolved as a human being. And then I listen back to archives of recordings or read writings or posts that have been published and I realize that there has certainly been growth and I think how amazing it is that day to day nothing has changed and I then obviously am reflective and look around and realize just how much has actually changed and I think this change can be seen most specifically in this true hellscape that we are living in today called 2020 America. Personally, I hate it here. And (laughs) I'm obviously being dramatic and satirical because I am overflowing with people and relationships and things to just love on and be so incredibly grateful for. But when I say I hate it here satirically, what I really mean is my true undying hatred for the fact that All we need to do for human beings, every human being to thrive in America is to prioritize the basic human rights of another human being beside ourselves and that of our immediate family. And we just can't seem to do that um, in any regard. So obviously, certainly and most recently with COVID, but Every other systemic issue in our nation, including racial injustice and equity, gender equality, sexual identity, socioeconomic status, education, health care, climate, and everything in between and everything I've forgotten. We can't seem to prioritize another human being's needs. The universal human needs of subsistence and security and freedom, connection, and understanding our meaning are just not met for so many people living in America. And these universal human needs are often defined as our fundamental values that drive our actions. So you can imagine how that's greatly impacted when those needs aren't being met. We are all trying to attain these needs, and according to author Elena Aguilar, we as humans use different strategies to meet these needs, and some strategies are effective and skillful, and others are less effective and less skillful, which is where our emotions and our emotional response comes in. 
So arguably, generally speaking in America right now, our universal needs for basic health, physical safety, shelter, touch, consistency, emotional safety, order, peace, stability, and trust are all being compromised daily and in a myriad of ways and to varying degrees of intensity based on your intersectional identity. And because of this, emotions are high and emotional intelligence is at an all-time low. Emotions and emotional response to any situation are information to ourselves about whether or not our basic needs are being met. And I'd like to right now just identify emotional intelligence um, as the following chain of action. So essentially, you can think of emotional intelligence in this way. Um, You are triggered by something. So let's say, for example, you're left out of a group. You experience an emotion. In this case, we'll say anger or sadness. And then if you're truly working on your emotional intelligence, you begin to identify the core belief or the value or need that's associated with that emotion. So in this example, that would be our need for connection and belonging. And that need isn't being met in this situation. So again, if we want to elevate that emotional intelligence at this point, we would push back on that emotion. We would question it. We, we would reframe it um, to say, well, how can that need be met by something else? Who could I reach out to to feel connected to? Who do I know that can give me that sense of belonging? Or is this something that I'm not going to get from someone else and have to find within myself? America, however, lacks, generally speaking, lacks the ability to do this. And we are quite possibly one of the most emotionally illiterate countries that I'm sure genuinely believes that they're emotionally literate because we have these token systems in place to point to, to solidify our belief that we're doing it and we're doing it well. And one of those examples can be um, in the public schools, schools have began to implement social emotional learning into the school day. And this was implemented to help students manage their emotions and set and achieve positive goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain positive relationships, and make responsible decisions. And while that's definitely a need and so important, it does not equate for America being emotionally intelligent. And I've often heard both educators and parents alike mock SEL as a subject, making the claim that, you know, they've never received SEL time as kids and they turned out fine and they know how to have empathy for others and they know how to build lasting relationships and communicate properly. And my response to this is honestly just an audible laugh because we actually quite literally see that as a collective, we in fact don't have the capacity to do any of that. And while it's not an excuse, it's simply a reality of our universe that our needs aren't being met. And so the lack of universal needs not being met spirals into our lack of emotional intelligence and quickly into the inability to be self-reflective and knowing just who we are as a human being. And when we look at that downward spiral in reverse, 
being self-reflective is truly like the basic minimum you can do as a human and navigating through the world as an individual and as a collective and your ability to be self-reflective in an honest and loving way will not only improve your emotional intelligence but also has the ability to improve your self-worth and you're able to see yourself as a beautifully flawed human being who can acknowledge when mistakes are made or emotions are high and who can take action to change those emotions and negative behaviors to obviously better yourself but your relationships also and the larger world around you. But I do just want to take a second to be very clear that I am in no way, shape, or form saying that I do literally any of what I just said. Um, I like to think that I'm self-reflective, but I do think that it can often be to a detrimental point where I place blame on myself instead of just acknowledging the feeling and the emotion that I have. And my emotional intelligence or truly understanding my human needs is something that I've only just begun to work on. And hopefully as I continue to understand those needs and how when those needs aren't met for me in some capacity, my emotional response is normal, but the action following the emotional response is what I have control over. Um, I hope that that's the point that I get to, but I'm absolutely not there yet. Um, You know, I have the ability to as I stated in the beginning, effectively and skillfully deal with that need not being met, but am I actually doing it? Um, I can seek out something else to meet that need, or I can just sit with the fact that that specific need might not be met today or this year or come from someone else, and that simply can just be okay. And I'm learning how to understand that and sit with that. But I am in the very beginning stages and I am nowhere near this elevated, emotionally intelligent self that I'm writing and speaking about. So I just think it's important to articulate that. My guest today talks about the importance of being self-reflective and how when you're self-reflective in a loving and caring and realistic way, it can ultimately build your self-worth and therefore your emotional intelligence. My guest is the incredible 11-year-old Malia Glass. She is a kind and caring, emotionally intelligent little human who also just happens to be a published author, super casual, uh, an incredible dancer, singer, actress, musician, jack of all trades. And our conversation that we got to have holds so much power for me because in my mind, the hope for our future comes from our youth. Our children today are smarter and stronger, more resilient, and just better equipped to face the heinousness of this world that we are in. And they understand and work on how they can better serve one another as human beings. They can develop skills to work on caring less about what others think as a way of defining their existence in the world, and they, with the right supports and scaffolds, will ideally become the more emotionally intelligent human beings we need running our nation. Today, you'll hear her talk indirectly about the ways in which she deals with her human needs not being met and how she changes the stories she tells herself in her head to increase her emotional intelligence. 
She is proof in the importance of working to push comparison out of your head to reach your ultimate level of authentic self and ultimately self-acceptance. She is proof of the importance in finding a community that helps to build yourself, your self-expression, and have a sense of belonging. My conversation with Molly helped me to start being more self-reflective and really thinking about and challenging the ways in which I think about myself and my universal human needs as well. Um, Additionally, in our conversation, you will hear us say or allude to that kids aren't self-aware. And in this context, we want to define that self-awareness as self-consciousness. So you'll hear Malia say that when kids are younger, they aren't self-aware. And what is meant by that is that they aren't self-conscious at that point. Please enjoy my conversation with the beautiful Malia Glass and begin to reflect on how you can increase your own emotional intelligence in this crazy chaotic world that we live in. Well, everyone, welcome back to The Peak in the Pit. I'm super excited to have you here. And today I have one of my favorite people in the world, Malia Glass. Thank you, Molly, for being here and making time when it's nice out and you should be playing soccer. Um, So can you tell us who you are, even though I kind of gave it away, and we'll start with how old you are. Um, My name is Maria Glass, and I'm 11 years old. What are some things that you enjoy doing, like your hobbies? What what do you like to do? Um, Some of my hobbies are dance, musical theater, um, singing, and I also play several instruments, and I guess you could say I'm a bit artsy. Mm, sounds like it. Um, for those of you listening, I have had the pleasure of seeing Malia dance and act and sing all in person. And if you ever get a chance to go see one of her shows, it is absolutely worth it. She's incredible. Um, so we heard you say that you're artsy. How is that one way you would describe yourself? Or how would you describe yourself to someone who's never met you before? Because a lot of our listeners don't know you. Um, I would describe myself as kind but sometimes stubborn and mm. outgoing and always willing to try new things. <laughs> um, and then how would your friends describe you, do you think? Um, I think my friends would describe me as um, maybe kind but also a little hard-headed because <laughs> I don't <laughs> listen sometimes. Okay, so explain that. What do you mean when you say stubborn and hard-headed? I love those two words. Can you describe what you mean by that? Um, sometimes I can be a little pushy when I want something done faster, um, don't get what I want. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, or it depends on the situation? I think it depends on the situation, but I definitely know it's something that I can work on. I think one of the things that I really love about you is at such a young age, you are able to be very self-reflective. Do you know what that means when I say that, self-reflective? I think it means um, you can reflect on your actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you are someone that does that really well. And I think it's important to mention for people who are listening that you are one of four 
siblings in your family, right? You're one of four girls and you are the oldest sister um, of, of the glass girls. And do you think that being the oldest and you're a lot, I mean, you're a lot older than Gracie, right? She's the next in line. You're a lot older than her. Do you think yeah. being the oldest has anything to do with you being reflective and being able to think about your actions? Um, I think it definitely can connect because we've had some issues about getting along and having to reflect on how we can act better to each other as sisters. Who helps you do that? Who helps you be reflective? Um, mainly my um, mom and sometimes my dad. Um, I go to my room and reflect on what I do and maybe write out what I could have done better and what I should do next time. I love that. I think adults need to maybe do that too. A lot of adults that I know could benefit from that. Um, so I want to let all of our listeners know that I asked you to be on Peak in the Pit because I read your memoir. So for those of you that don't know, fifth graders at the school that Molly goes to have to write an end of the year memoir. And um, her mom shared it with me and I just thought it was really powerful and it really resonated with me because I think that that, that what she wrote about, and we're going to get into that, is something that all women struggle with and especially young girls. So we're going to talk a lot about her memoir today, and I want to start off with reading you um, her first paragraph, and then we'll get into a couple questions that I have for her. Have you ever thought about what others think about you? I know I have, but only as I've gotten older. As a child, we are less self-aware and more carefree. Kids make silly faces at strangers and wave at everyone and pick their noses in public. Research says it's not until the age of about five when we become more self-conscious. I know this is true because I've experienced it for the past six years. And today I'm working on caring less about what others think. So I think that is like such a powerful introduction to a piece of writing. I also just commend you on how you write. I think you're a beautiful writer. Um, and the first thing that uh, when I read this, the first thing that re resonated with me was when you said, as children, we are less self-aware and more carefree. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I think kids are more carefree because they um, do not care about what others think of them yet. For example, when I was little, I might have picked my nose in public or waved at a couple of strangers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And why do you think that they're like that? Why, like, what do you think makes, let's say, let's use you and Gracie as an example, or we could even use Madison. Maddie mm -hmm. is like very carefree, right? And yes. <laughs> what do you think allows her to be carefree? Like, why do you think she doesn't care what people think about her yet? I think um, she doesn't care about what others think about her yet because um, nobody here at her own home is judging her about what she looks like um, and what she does. In your paper, you wrote, you know, 
as early as five that this can change where kids become more self-conscious. What do you think happens at age five when we start being, you know, embarrassed or not feeling as proud of ourselves as we once did? So I think when we turn five, we start to become more self-aware and care about things like how we look and how we dress and our hair because we realize that other people notice other people notice things that and so, that sometimes we don't notice mm-hmm. and um we become more self-conscious about other things we don't like about ourselves because other people are pointing it out to you right yeah. i remember a time in second grade so i was seven and i'm 27 now so 20 <laughs> years ago and i still remember this someone made not made fun of, but like pointed out that I say the word bathing suit weird. I used to say bailing suit and not bathing suit. And I still remember feeling so, so embarrassed about that. I agree with you that I think like our peers um, really impact our, our own self-image, right? Like what we hear about ourselves in the eyes of other people. Do you have an example of a time that you... Like, do you remember when you started feeling self-conscious? Do you have any memories of, like, what set it off for you? Um, so when I was in third grade, I remember um, I, that's when I started to realize my hair was different than the other girls I went to school with because they had straight, dark, long hair, and I had curly, light brown hair and started to want to look like other girls. Mm. For um, example, I had darker skin than a lot of the girls at my school, and um, I felt a little different, And but to me, being different is also being special, and, and I want to take advantage of being my special and unique self. Actually, somebody um, asked if I was mixed or if I was completely um, just black. Mm-hmm. And I did say I was mixed. I was Mexican and um, African-American. And so for our listeners at home, do you want to talk a little bit about what it means to you to be mixed? Like what that, what that looks like in the glass household? Because that being mixed is very different for a lot of different people, right? So like, what does that mean for Malia Glass? Um, to me, being mixed is actually very great. Uh, I have two families, one family in my African-American side and my Mexican side. One one of them lives in Michigan and one of them lives um, closer to the city. Um, My Mexican side um, kind of brings out the, my food, my taste for food and Mm. uh, my language Mm. and my dance in Latin dance. Mm-hmm. And my um, African-American side brings out more like of my musical side for, because I really like to sing and I play several instruments. And mom sometimes speaks Spanish at home too, right? Like she's, she's bilingual, right? Yes. And I think another thing that's important for listeners to know is that you are a dancer and you have dancers on both sides of your family, right? Like mom does Latin dancing and then your, is it your uncle who dances as well on dad's side? Um, yes, my uncle and my aunt. 
So it seems like you, both of your parents have really prioritized um, embracing both of, both of the things that make you, you, you know, it yes. seems like they are, they take a lot of pride in you knowing where you come from and knowing that both of those components make you who you are. <laughs> so if you were to tell someone, let's say it's someone your age or someone younger than you, or even an adult, because I don't think adults are in this place that you're in yet. If you were to tell someone like, this is what you need to do every day to start accepting yourself. What would you, what would you tell them? How do you, how do you start to learn how to love yourself? Um, I would suggest positive affirmations. Um, looking in the mirror and saying positive things about yourself. Like you are strong, you're beautiful, or calling out the things you like about yourself instead of focusing on the things that you don't like about yourself or want to change about yourself which is one of the things that my mom has taught me to do about myself. And do you, do you say those affirmations to yourself a lot? Um, I mainly say those affirmations to myself when I'm feeling down or, or um, when I just don't like what I look like. I'm disappointed about um, who I am and who I could be. So when I, um, do these positive affirmations, they help me um, empower myself. And I think it's so important. I'm obviously very biased because I have you as a student, um, but I think it's so important that you do this. I think it's so important that you lead by example because you are also a mentee in Chance to Dance and you are, you know, you are a leader and you are a teacher to a lot of younger students. And you're a leader and a teacher in your home every single day, right? With three younger sisters. But you take that and you are also that role when you come to dance. Yes. Um, Chance to Dance have, has definitely um, taught me so much about um, what I, who I am. And if you are ever down to find and how to find yourself again by telling yourself, I am beautiful, I am powerful, I am strong, and I'm ready to work hard. I, love I think those couple of words mean a lot to kids when they think they are nobody. They um, chance to dance lets them know that they are somebody and they can achieve anything they put their mind to. Um, and I'm obviously so happy to have you as like a person to help spread that message and um, be a part of that family. And you joined a while ago. Um, and when you were writing in your memoir, you talked a lot about how in second grade you came to dance and you could see that your friends were better than you, but you stuck to it. And when I read that, I was like, huh, that's interesting because I don't ever remember thinking that Molly's friends were better at dance than her. Um, so my question to you is, when you say my friends were better than me, what were you basing that off of? Like, where did you, was that something that someone told you? Is that how you felt? What do you think? Um, so when I, I was basing that off of how my friends danced compared to me, um, 
I thought that um, because they had had so much experience with this specific company, they knew how to dance um, much better than me just joining the um, company. And I felt a little um, down because I thought I could um, be on the same level as them. But now I feel um, positive about how I dance. And now I'm very confident about getting up on stage during the recital day and just dancing my heart out. How do you think you made it through that? Like, how do you think you were able to keep moving forward? Um, like I said earlier, I would do positive affirmations in the mirror mm. and saying positive things to myself. And that just got me to the point where I was like, hey, it doesn't matter how good others dance. It depends on how I dance and how I believe I dance. And if I think I dance good, I think I dance good. It doesn't yeah. matter what anybody else thinks. Absolutely. I mean, that is so true. You know, you having that experience of not feeling adequate or not feeling good enough and, and working through that and using affirmations to make you push forward and you realizing that it literally doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It matters what you think about you. I think it's so important that you've had those experiences because for all of our new families that join us, they probably have those similar feelings, right? Or those similar moments of insecurity. And for you to be yeah. able to say, hey, listen, I was in that spot once. Like I felt the way you felt at one point. You just have to keep moving forward. I'm wondering if you can talk about the feeling that musical theater gives you. Because we talked about dance um, and the feeling that dance gives you. But can you talk about the feeling that musical theater gives you and like what about it makes you happy like you wrote about in your memoir? Um, yeah, so musical theater makes me very happy. Um, I feel like this because musical theater um, slash DYT is a safe place I can be where I can let all my emotion out on the stage and um, be, be carefree about what others think because it's a safe environment for me to just let loose and be who I am. Totally. And it's important that I think one more thing that's important to mention is that you are saying these positive affirmations to yourself and you're focusing on you. But I also think that it's really valuable to note that you have found friends and you have found spaces that accept you for who you are, that encourage you to be who you are, that value who you are. Um, and I think that we are both very lucky to be, to have found friends and places that allow us to do that. Um, and I think it's important for our listeners, if they don't feel like they have a place like that, to really try and look for maybe one person or one thing that gives them that positive feeling. So I guess my biggest takeaway or like the biggest thing that I want our listeners to to get out of this is that at the end of the day it's most important what you think of yourself not what anyone yes. else thinks of you and so 
if like, and we kind of already talked about this a little bit, but if you were going to tell our listeners, if you were going to give them something to do, like a task to improve their self-image or improve their self-worth, what task would you give them? You need to do this, this, and this in order to start feeling better about yourself. I would would suggest um, you would look in the mirror and realize that you are beautiful just the way you are and you shouldn't change for anybody and saying positive things about yourself and making them true. And do you think that your sisters are going to grow up the way that you have and be a strong woman like you are? Are you helping them do that? I hope so. And yes, I will try to (laughs) share the message with them. I think that you are. I think you're helping so many people and you're going to help even more people with this podcast and this conversation. I just think it's really valuable. And I think that you are such a beautiful spirit and I'm so grateful to know you and to learn from you. And because I think, I mean, maybe, you know, but adults don't always have good self-image either, right? Like they have doubts and fears and insecurities. And so this was an extremely important reminder, even for me. Um, So I'm very grateful for you. Thank you very much. I hope that our listeners take what you said and really use it um, to help improve their self-image and their self-worth because starting early is so important. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.